Welcome back to the Courtside Podcast, and for this episode, we'll be going into the Western Eastern Conference Finals, and I was expecting more of a five from, really, these two matchups, but they're just kind of going one-sided. Uh, of course, I'm going to start off with the Boston Celtics and the Miami Heat, and then go into the Denver Lakers series, where that one, I mean, it looked like it was over after game one, but a lot of things have really break down in both of these games, you know, I watched and double replayed most of them so gonna go into each one and kind of you know is it already a quick Cancun trip for the Boston Celtics and of course with the Los Angeles Lakers so more of that coming up on this episode of Courtside this episode of the Courtside podcast is brought to you by YouTube channels Highway Temptation and Captain Barbo who make content on YouTube weekly if you're looking to kind of sit down for a video I know I usually you know I love to watch videos while I eat so call it a guy thing. I'm not too positive. I mean, I mean, how many people, you know, watch videos when they eat, right? Is it just me? I don't think so. But whenever I do, it's either with a Highway Temptation or a Captain Barbo video. They got great stuff. We talk about Elden Ring. We talk about God of War, which is a series that's coming up very soon on Captain Barbo's channel. We're talking about also such as, you know, Sonic reviews. If you're a huge Sonic fan, look forward to that. And, of course, more things on Highway Temptation for they have great video game content. So don't forget, look at those channels on YouTube, and of course, subscribe to the podcast. So I just finished re-looking a little bit at the uh, Game 3 for the Heat Celtics series game. And before I even go to Game 3, I think because I wasn't really able to get podcast episodes out for Games 1 and 2 of both Eastern and Western Conference, I'm going to just go into the Eastern Conference, kind of go back to Game 1 where the Celtics... It looked like they had a huge part of their time in control in the first half of that game one. And then, you know, out of nowhere, the Miami Heat just do a freaking wallop punch to start off the second half where they have a 46-point third quarter. And then later on, the Celtics, who ended up, you know, getting a little bit more of a better pace, right? They readjusted their offense. Jason Tatum led the way himself, getting 30 points. Jalen Brown with his own 22. So... JB and JT, you know, the big two for the Celtics, they were doing their job. However, Jimmy Butler, who was a part of that huge push that Miami Heat did for those 46 points in the third, he ends up finishing up with 35 points and was probably one of the more aggressive players in this game. Um, and again, it wasn't really just Jimmy himself. I mean, Ben Obayo, he had a pretty good game himself. Uh, something that we definitely have seen from him out of the New York series. But the interesting part about this Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, Kayla Martin, and Kyle Lowry. Half of those guys coming off of the bench and each having 15 points under their name. It was an incredible shooting night for them. I mean, we look back at, for example, from Kayla Martin, shot 54.5 from the floor. Kyle Lowry, 50% from the floor. Max Struess, 60 from the floor. Gabe Vincent, 66.7 from the floor. It was one of the most accurate shooting nights that I probably have seen from this Miami Heat team in their entire time in the postseason. And again, historic run as an eighth seed and also a play-in team in this new future. And when you look at the Celtics in that game, you know, how much help was you really getting for the bench? Besides Brogdon, besides Derek White, I mean, there wasn't really anything else. It's a weird thing because the Celtics team has gone with a seven-man rotation and they haven't been able to go down to Pritchard. They haven't really been able to go down to Hauser. And let alone Grant Williams didn't even play a single minute in game one. If you look at the bench points, uh, they basically had 19 out of Brogdon. Again, six men of the year. So it was a good you know outing for him. But then Derek White, 11 points. 
and both of them shot efficiently enough to be above 50% from the floor themselves. And as well, better than 50% from behind the arc. So it was a good game offensively for the Celtics. Defensively, they couldn't really corral anything of Miami. And then you go to game two. Game two, the Celtics, you know, they back and forth with the Miami Heat in the beginning of that game. Not going to lie to you. They looked like they were on the kind of the ropes. And then they got on this run where they had basically it looked like it was going to be the same situation. You know, you got a first half lead. You go against this Miami Heat team who was a third quarter, second half type of team where they really pushed the engines in the second. And it just, it hits the fan. Grant Williams starts playing in this game. He's playing great defense well against Bam Adebayo because they kept on doing switches to get Jalen Brown against Bam, which obviously is a mismatch in a sense of size and overall physicality in the post that you really want to have on defense if you're the Boston Celtics. And what were they? Up by like eight, I think, for my notes. No, actually, they were up by 12, I think. Yeah, the Celtics were up by 12. Later on, the fourth quarter comes in. There's a moment between Grant Williams and Jimmy Butler. And this is, I mean, again, this is going to be a rivalry that people are going to be talking about for generations, for years, in my honest opinion, in the Eastern Conference. For the last four years, five years, and shoot, if you want to say this decade and century, this has been two teams that have always found themselves together in the East. And both of them have their own moments. Of course, but this was definitely a moment for these recent teams. Grant Williams going against Jimmy Butler with about six minutes remaining in the game. Jimmy Butler goes over him uh, for a little, like, kind of easy shot in the middle of the paint. It's called and one, but Grant Williams doesn't move after the whistle. Both of the guys in their faces. It was kind of an electric moment in TD Garden. And ever since that moment, the game kind of flipped. Miami went on a 20-7 and run, while the Celtics made, I believe, only like 6 or 9 points. In the last 5 minutes of the game, in the Heat, in miraculous fashion, came back to win it in, again, an insane game. But it looked one-sided in the last 5 minutes, where Miami took a 111-105 victory in Boston and a 2-0 series lead in Boston. And now we're at Game 3. Game three itself, it was the worst game the Boston Celtics could ever play. Probably the worst game they've ever played in regular season play, playoff play, maybe even preseason play for that matter. It was a terrible night. They started off the night going back and forth Miami. They were exchanging leads and then turnovers started to plague them. I mean, actually, hold on, let, let me just look at the box score stats itself. Let's just look at turnovers real quick for the Miami no, my apologies for the Boston Celtics, right? 15 total team turnovers. Miami's nine. But the turnovers were all basically in this first half of this game. The turnovers turned into quick points. The Miami Heat, and again, I'm gonna break try, I believe, my best to break down this offense, but there's nothing really to this offense to break down with. I mean, we're talking about a, a team that does high pick and roll, and they get Bam in a bio. Either it's being called a moving screen. Either it's going to be something where Bam just drops inside and you have a switch where a guy takes off and, you know, mismatch on the wing to give it to Bam who has his own mismatch down low. Or Duncan Robinson and Max Drusen gave Vincent to have a little bit of opening to immediately shoot that three. Which they've been probably the most accurate team I've ever seen shooting the box basketball. This was the most, and again, I don't want to say it's called a massacre. But it felt like a massacre seeing them shoot the ball the way they did. The Miami Heat had uh, multiple guys shoot the basketball from three 
above 60%. And he has heard me. Multiple guys from 60% from three-point range. Let's just look at the stats real quick for the Miami Heat. And then I'll go into the final score and the game itself. I just want to speak about this one. Kevin Love, one shot from the field behind the arc, 100%, right? Gabe Vincent, 6 of 9, 66.7 percentage from three-point range. Kayla Martin, 4 and 7, 57%. Kyle Lowry, 50% from behind the arc, 1 and 2. And then you look at Duncan Robinson. I've never seen Duncan Robinson shoot like this unless it's some random Thursday night against the Indiana Pacers in the regular season. This man, Duncan Robinson, and you got to love it, undrafted guy, majority of this Heat team. I know that's kind of like the message that the media wants to tell you about this Miami Heat team, even though I feel like it's a totally different thing. But this guy, Duncan Robinson, finished the game off the bench from three, shooting 7 of 11. 7 of 11. He was 63.6% from three. He shot a total. Actually, my apologies. The 7 of 11, that's his overall field goal in the game. His 3 was 5 and 7. He had a better shooting percentage from behind the arc compared to what he gets inside in mid-range. How? I mean, at that point, why even play the game? You know, I say in previous podcasts, especially with the Atlanta series for the Boston Celtics, the two games that Atlanta was able to get over the Celtics, we talked about a game where the Hawks shot better than 65% as a team overall. And I think it was, um, what was it, like game four, right? Or game three or whatever. And then you have another night where Trey Young just goes off in game five in the first round. And you can't really do anything about it. It's This is one of those games. What could you possibly do with Duncan Robinson making everything? With Gabe Vincent looking like Damian Lillard. I mean, he had a career-high playoff in points. With 29. He led the team. Jimmy Butler didn't do anything in this game. He had 16. Played nearly like 30 minutes, 31 minutes. He had a whole break in the fourth quarter. The fourth quarter was just a bunch of scrubs. And for some reason, and I hate to say scrubs because these are NBA players, but it looked like that in the Boston Celtics scrubs were actually playing better than the starting lineup in the rotation, usual rotation that Celtics have been playing throughout this entire Eastern Conference Finals. Miami took this game 128 to 102, and it didn't feel close past midway in the second quarter. You look at the Boston Celtics starting lineup. Tatum, 14. Brown, 12. And Tatum did have 14 and 10, so it was a double-double day. But look around. Al Horford, 3 and 6 from the floor, had 8 points. Derek White, almost a goose egg of a game. 3 and 6 from 3. 3-9 and nine from the floor itself. He was just chucking up open threes, praying that he actually gets the hot hand, and he kept on missing open threes down the stretch of this game. Marcus Smart, 8-9-8. Eight, 8 points, 9 rebounds, 8 assists. He was doing his job as a point guard. Unfortunately, more of a point guard than a shooting guard. He was 2-8 from the floor. The guy couldn't even get a single 3-0-3 three, in this game. And it looked like he was just forcing it throughout the entire way. But that's not even the worst part. The sixth man of the year, Malcolm Brogdon. He has been consistent and has shown up in really big games for the Celtics team this playoffs. He barely even showed up tonight. He had two rebounds, two assists. He took six shots from the floor. 
three from three. A lot of them open. A lot of them just come up to the three-point line, shoot it, you know, shoot and spray type mentality. He had zero points at the end of the day. The man Malcolm, in a crazy stat, 18 and a half minutes in this game off the bench, a crucial time where the Celtics really needed a push, and he was unable to even answer within 18 and a half minutes time to even get a basket. Celtics missing open threes. They couldn't really find anything. Couldn't even find the bottom of the barrel. When I look overall at this team, they shot 26% from three. And you want to know what there was from the floor? 39.8. The Miami Heat, as I mentioned before, insane shooting night for them, for multiple players, especially players not named Jimmy Butler nor Bam Adebayo. Bam Adebayo, he still had a pretty decent uh, time with 13 points. Nothing too crazy. But when you look at the team's shooting, 56.8% from the floor. 54.3% from three. There's not a single team that could really overcome that. Sorry, not sorry. No matter what the Celtics did, there was no way they could overcome this. And I think Joe Mazzulla immediately saw that. I mean, he ended up benching, you know, the two guys. And people were saying, oh, the Celtics quit. The Celtics quit. Well, I mean, how do you come back in that game? There's nothing you can do in those games. You know, when you look at James Harden, who had 40 points two times, in situations where you lose that game, you know, you have to tell yourself, hey, the guy was really hot. There's nothing we're going to do. This Miami Heat team throughout this series, they have in game one, that 46, which I mentioned before, that's their highest scoring quarter in playoff history as a franchise in game one. Then game two comes and Caleb Martin, he actually had 25 points in that one coming off the bench. And that was a game where the Celtics couldn't even guard him off ball, right? Couldn't even stick with him from between Derek White and Malcolm Brogdon. I mean, that was an historic night for Caleb. And then you look at this game, an historic night for Gabe Vincent having a career high in the postseason, 29-point game. And let alone this game in general, about 50% in all categories. And, of course, just pushing the... I mean, it looked like Game 3 of New York in the second round. where They were just pushing the pace. When they were going, this Heat team goes. They don't really run any type of offense. They don't really run any type of drills. They just push... And you have guys like Gabe Vincent doing step-back threes like Damian Lillard, which I mentioned before. You have Duncan Robinson going off the wing, just doing random shots. Every single shot that went in, I can't really explain it to you. I really can't explain it to you. We're talking about a team that's just hot at the right moment. Like Jimmy Butler took him out of the first round. I don't think Butler's really shown out unless he like has like spots and games here and there. Because he does a lot of his fadeaway J, which is, you know, again... Part of his package, I think it's probably one of the best things from his package that he has on offense. But I don't think this team is defined by Jimmy Butler no more. And they have about this narrative, oh, undrafted guys, ape seed, we're underdogs, no one's a bet for us, 3% from ESPN, which is, you know, just based on analytical stats. I don't think anybody should be listening to ESPN after this, especially what they did with the Celtics in the NBA Finals last year and let alone a majority of the series that they've done in the past few years based on stat analytics. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a motive, it's a narrative. I don't really believe the narrative at all. The Miami Heat came into this postseason believing, yeah, we should be able to beat all these teams. And somehow they've gone through five games with the Milwaukee Bucks in the first round, six games with the New York Knicks where you had Jalen Brunson playing like three to two games the entire time. And then now with the Celtic team, we talk about three historic games for the Miami Heat franchise. 
You know what I mean? Like historic, like it's stuff that no one expects to see happen. I mean, you can't really describe, you know, you can't pinpoint, is this a Spo series? Is this a, I don't think anybody's getting outcoached here. I don't think a single person is getting outcoached. I don't think Joe Missoula is getting outcoached with this timeout situation, which I know has been controversial. I don't think Avery Spolstra is, you know, drawing something insane. These guys are just making their shots. And the Celtics have just been unable to respond in late stretches. I mean, how can you when a team is shooting above 50% from three? How can you when you've got a role guy that ends up finding himself open off ball and having enough space to knock down these shots where you feel like he's Paul George in 2014 and Caleb Martin? How can you stop a team that just appears to just win? That's the only thing I can say about this Heat team. You know, as a basketball fan, as a guy that's been watching basketball a majority of my life, I watched this game for game three. And I just scratched my head every single time they put up a shot. It wasn't like it was a crazy good shot selection until later on in the third quarter where they were just moving around the Celtics where they had Bam and Abayo just yamming it down on guys for an attempt for a poster. I don't, I don't think I liked like 50 or one-third of the shots Miami took this game. And they knocked down just about more than one-third of those shots that I talk about. But going into a breakdown, because it's not just the offense. Like, this team has been playing very phenomenal on the defensive end. But the crazy thing about it, they're playing a high 2-3 zone, which a lot for a lot of people, that's like you learn that in pickup ball. You learn a 2-3 zone in elementary school, high school stuff. Eric Spolster has been able to run a 2-3 zone against this Boston Celtic team and keep him away from driving inside and dishing it out to guys. Celtics have been working a majority of the time on their offense possessions from the perimeter, swinging the ball around. And for a team like the Celtics who have been shooting poorly from three, especially in this series, it's been killing them. It's an absolute killer. Takes away Jason Tatum, takes away Jalen Brown to really use the inside, who has a phenomenal mid-range game but can't really do much if he's not going to be in isolation with guys in this zone. The only thing you can do against a zone, which you know a majority of teams, I don't think they've been able to figure out against the Miami Heat. You take a guy off the wing, and then you move on top of the perimeter of the wing after a guy replaces him in that position, and you just keep on moving from there. That's the only thing you can do. You can't pass in the middle, or you get like triple teamed or quadruple team as they close in on you in the paint. You can't really just swing it on the off ball over to the other side of the sideline because they're going to easily intercept that. This has been a really weird series. I think it's been a really weird just in general playoffs to see the Miami Heat use this 2-3 zone and use their quick transition offense and make quick defense and quick baskets, it, it's, it's hard to explain. It really is hard to explain. I look at this Miami Heat team, and again, they've been playing phenomenal, but how, how can I pinpoint it? You know, It's not a guy. It's not a narrative. I think it's more just their defense closing on these teams and keeping Miami ahead. In the fray. That's the only thing I can say. Miami throws the balls up. They make the shots in. They get the best chance they get with looks off the screens and the top of the perimeter. And you got shooters like Max Drews, Caleb Martin, uh, Gabe Vincent, of course. And then you can never forget about the one and only Duncan Robinson. Which is the, the crazy thing about Duncan Robinson. Like, growing up in South Florida, myself, I've seen guys that look like Duncan Robinson. You know what I mean? I mean, there's a couple of guys in this Miami Heat team that I feel like were playing pickleball. And YMCA and Hialeah on 49th Street. It's just insane to me that this team has been able to make it this far. Now, one win away from the NBA Finals as an eighth seed 
and was a win, let alone a loss away in the play-in tournament to not even make these playoffs, but now a win away from a chance at a title against either the Lakers or the Denver Nuggets. But before I go into the Western Conference Series, I would say one thing about the Boston Celtics. Throughout this, probably a nightmare for Brad Stevens watching on the sidelines of all these games in his press boxes or whatever in the lower bowl, and a nightmare I can imagine for Joe Mazzullo and every single guy on that coach's bench and for the guys who are on the floor, such as Tatum and Brown and Horford. They probably have been the most positive throughout this entire time. I've never seen a series like this for the Celtics where I felt, man, these guys are getting embarrassed. In almost every game, they're getting embarrassed. But the Celtics, they've been able to keep that mindset. Yeah, next game going forward, you know, this and that. We got to keep moving, passing back. But Joe Mazzula, I'm not saying he cracked. I'm not saying anything in the sense of, you know, it's over for Joe. But Joe Mazzula says that he just might have lost a locker room. And that makes me think. Because the guys themselves, they look, you know, stone-faced in front of the media. They're able to get the job done. They're down 3-0. And if you're trying to tell me the coach says he's lost the locker room, he hasn't been able to get guys under control. I mean, is there a lot of hope? I mean, for the first time in the NBA history, could the Celtics be able to come back down 3-0 in the Eastern Conference Finals? Let alone down 3-0 for the first time in NBA playoff history in the 77 years of NBA basketball. Do I think it's possible? To be honest, in the last recent years, we've seen guys that have come back from 3-1 deficit like nothing, right? We've seen crazier things in the span of this last decade that never have happened in the 50, 60, whatever years prior. So could the Boston Celtics do it? I think if there is a team to do it, it would definitely be in this series, the Boston Celtics. And the funny thing about it, and again, I hate saying ESPN's analytics or the percentages, but I saw something on Twitter. Don't know if it's true or not, but it was a screenshot right after the game of ESPN's update. They say Celtics 72% to win this series. I don't know what number they got that from. I don't know where exactly you're getting that from. It feels like they're getting that from the regular season. But what I would say, if there is going to be a team to beat this Miami Heat team down 3-0, it will be the Celtics. The only thing, they will have to switch up on defense. Derek White will have to step up. Malcolm Brogdon would have to step up. Jason Tatum got to get 30 points per game coming down. Jalen Brown, you know, he's going to do what he has to do himself. Get you 25 points here and there. Move the ball a little bit. But the Celtics, they're able, they could do this. They could get four straight. We're talking about a Celtic team that have been on stretches where they've won 10 to 12 games in the regular season. They can do it against a Miami Heat team where they had, I believe, the winning record against them, if not tied it. This is a Celtic team that is built for situations like this. They've been down uh, two games before in a series. They've been down uh, before in just in general in terrible situations throughout their playoff careers. And I'm meaning a Celtic team with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown in it. So they've been in Eastern Conference Finals situations where they haven't been able to get out of and some that they have been able to get out of. And this might be a situation that the Celtics could potentially come back and win this series. But again, Miami Heat, three historic games, and I think there's another one in there. But let's now jump into the Western Conference Finals. And this has been a really, I mean, it's been a competitive series besides the fact it's been 3-0. Like, for example, we look at Game 1 
of this series, right? That was uh, last Tuesday. Game one, Denver ended up taking 132 to 129. And they were even led by like 20, I think, at some point in the first half. They went on this crazy run in the first half where they ended up getting 37 points in the first quarter. You got Michael Porter Jr. getting easy baskets, Bruce Brown getting involved. Of course, Jokic, you know, facilitating everything down the middle himself. I mean, they were just moving like grease. I mean, they were just moving so smooth throughout that entire first half. And then the Lakers come out of nowhere. And they had a pretty well shooting in the third. The fourth quarter, I think the defense picked up. And there was a point where they are only down by one possession. We have Austin Reeves, you know, going back-to-back threes with like two minutes remaining. And you felt like, man, is Denver really going to give up on this game? Well, they weren't able to because Jamal Murray wouldn't allow it. Uh, Jamal Murray, who has been phenomenal throughout these last two series in the Western Conference. He starts off the Western Conference Finals with 31 points. Five rebounds, five assists, and was just lights out, shooting 60% from the floor and 50 from overall from behind the arc. Jokic himself, he was right there. I think he had probably the better night, though, in my opinion. 34 points, 21 rebounds, and 14 assists. Man is having wilt numbers. <laughs> wilt numbers against Anthony Davis, and Davis himself did his, you know, he did his best, though. He led the Lakers with 40 points and 10 rebounds in this one. And again, this was a game where Anthony Davis, probably the best game we've seen out of him in this entire postseason. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Denver took a game one, 132 to 126. Then you go to Tuesday. My apologies, the Thursday game after that Tuesday game. And it was a much closer affair. Uh, Denver ended up beating it out 108 to 103 over the Lakers. And this was more or less of a poor shooting overall. I don't think a single time in any quarter, either team got more than 30 points in the quarter. It was like one of those nights. Um, But you look at Denver, though, in this game. It was a Jamal Murray show all day. 37 points, 10 rebounds. He'd been really, besides Jokic, of course, who's going to be able to put up numbers like no one's ever seen before easily. Jamal Murray has been really at it, though. It was a lot of isolation plays in that game, too. You talk about good setups from Denver, you know, setting up the screen. Bruce Brown giving the rock to him. And then you also have Jamal Murray, who's just unafraid to take on LeBron, to take on Dennis Schroeder, to take on guys who are just, you know, going to give you business. In game two, the Lakers, I mean, they got numbers, though. LeBron James, 22 points, 9 rebounds, 10 assists. But besides that, Vanderbilt had a poor game. D'Angelo Russell had a poor game. And, I mean, let alone, like, D'Angelo Russell, D'Lo, I mean, he's been having a terrible series. I mean, and game two is kind of, you know, not saying the blueprint or anything like that for what it's probably going to be the rest of the way in the Western Conference Finals, but it was definitely an example of what I mean. D'Angelo Russell in game two, three and eight from the floor, one and five from three, and it looked like he was just chucking up from threes. It was just looked like he was, you know, praying one of them finally came in, and one did. Uh, but he ended up finishing with only 10 points, as I mentioned before, off of 32 and a half minutes on the floor. It was a really, really weird night for the Lakers in Game 2. Again, closer affair. Their defense stepped it up, and you know, besides Jamal Murray, there wasn't much going on in Denver. But Austin Reeves tied LeBron with most points in this game for the Lakers. 22 points from Austin Reeves. I don't know what's going to happen with him after this season with his contract. 
but he's going to get paid somewhere. I mean, the Detroit Pistons or even the San Antonio Spurs. Imagine the Spurs pick up Reeves, right? That'd be a crazy roster with Wimbyama. But either way, Austin Reeves, who has just been ridiculous throughout these playoffs, as well as Rui Hachimura, who finally came back off the bench giving you big numbers. He had 21 points in this one and didn't really share the rock much. Only one assist and two rebounds. Um, but he had a ridiculous night, though. 80% from the floor. And again, a lot majority of these shots are going to be right there inside mid-range, if not inside the paint. I mean, only took like two attempts from three in this game. But either way, Denver able to make its way out. And then with a 2-0 lead in the series, they go to Los Angeles. And the game in Los Angeles, it was a weird... Again, this has been a really weird series. Because you have Jamal Murray playing out of his mind. And then you have Jokic, they're giving you Wilt Chamberlain type of numbers. And then you have a guy like LeBron who has gotten you 20-point games here and there. But the bench has not been able to do much. I mean, besides D'Lo struggles. Like you also look at this bench of Vanderbilt. You look at Rui Hachimura who had a great game two. He didn't match due in game one. Let alone, if you look at the stats here in game three, Rui Hachimura had 13 points. But 33% from three, 41% from the floor. They're not getting a lot of help on the bench right it just doesn't make sense i mean you got guys like as i mentioned before hachimura schroeder walker the fourth like they got guys on this team that can definitely dominate but they're not getting that at all and besides this game with the lakers having an insane second quarter where they just saw anthony davis took over with lebron james and austin reeves again they're just unable to get the job done denver themselves just been going through everyone Jamal Murray, you thought he had a great game two? Check out this game three. Going up on guys in the wings. Back and forth between the legs. Fadeaway jump shots in mid-range. Easy three-pointers on top of the perimeter. They're fighting everything in the middle. And Murray got 37 points. Played more than 40 minutes, but 37 points and 29 attempts from the floor. I'm sorry, if your defense is letting a guy get 29 shot attempts from the floor there's no way you can come back and say yeah we probably held them below 20 points let alone 25 a, a shooter like murray's gonna he's bound to get 30 points off that many shot attempts you know what i mean and let alone 5 and 11 from three-point range he was just unstoppable phenomenal and got every single look he wanted and you look at other guys on this team like bruce brown bruce brown the weird thing about this series for hurricane fans uh miami hurricane fans Lonnie Walker and Bruce Brown used to be teammates for the Hurricanes back in the day. And now they've been able to see both these guys in the postseason. So great for their program. But Bruce Brown really shown out for the U with 15 points, 5 rebounds, and 5 assists. And he was efficient. He was efficient. Just about 55, 54 and a half uh, field goal percentage. But he got great looks inside. Really used a lot of his own strength to his advantage of taking that one step at his size and putting up a little floater. And it, it works for him, though. It really does work for him. And he did find a lot of shots from three. Unfortunately, he didn't really make all the shots from three. It was one and five, but he got pretty good looks. And speaking of three, Caldwell Pope in this game. He was four and seven from three-point range. He ended up finishing with 17 points. We finally got a Caldwell Pope game. <laughs> we finally got the Caldwell Pope game we were looking for as NBA fans. Uh, and Michael Porter Jr., who's been a little bit quiet in this series, I would have to say so for myself. I don't think like he's been able to be a part of games, unless you want to look at the game one down the stretch where he was kind of helping out on the floor. 
But in this game, got a double-double. 14 points, 10 rebounds. He even had six assists under his name. But defense, though, I think is one of the biggest things. Because Denver, they've been able to use his size and their position to be able to go against this Lakers team and just abrupt them and everything on offense. You look at overall in this game three, for example, seven steals. Seven steals to the Lakers three. Now, how often does that come around for Denver? A lot. But is it a usual thing for NBA teams? No, not at all. This is a Denver Nuggets team that has size, that has an MVP caliber player and two-time MVP Nikola Jokic, and now Jamal Murray, who is showing that the bubble was not a fluke. And guys who don't watch this team throughout the season are now figuring out, like, hey, you know, we probably have to look at tape again because this guy's ridiculous. And one of the biggest factors, I think, besides the defensive side of Denver, the offensive side of this Lakers team, LeBron James and Anthony Davis, and funny enough, Austin Reeves has shown out more than anybody else in this series for Los Angeles. And D'Lo, D'Lo has been loading for like seven years now. This man is still in the loading process, probably at 35%. Three points, three rebounds, four assists, one and eight from the floor in game three. And the worst part about it, that one of eight includes a one of six from three-point range where you have D'Lo again, shooting up shots. Some of them are open, not gonna lie to you. He was making his things work from the wing, but... It just looked like he was forcing everything. I feel like throughout this entire series, and again, if you're a shooter, you got to shoot the ball, but you can't just be forcing these baskets. So D'Angelo Russell, unable to get the job done as the Lakers are really needing him right now as they find themselves in a 3-0 hole. And this is a different situation with the Celtics because this is an eighth-seed Denver team. This isn't a team where you know you have history with them. This is a Denver team where this is the best I've ever seen Denver play. This is a team that's one one away from their first ever trip to the NBA Finals with a two-time MVP, with a point guard, well, not point guard, but just in general, a guard in Jamal Murray that has been lights out for them. And they haven't been able to find an answer, not on defense, but on offense. I don't think, I, I, I just can't tell you anything. Lakers got three guys shooting, you know, more than 20 points per game, getting the great attempts looks. But they're unable to get a good, dominant win. Let alone, they've been able to get close enough to come back in games. But they haven't been able to really make that stretch. They don't have that another guy on them. And when they did, they weren't really able to get the job done because their defense isn't able to hold the Nuggets. If you ask me, I got Denver sweeping out this series. Unlike the Celtics, I think the Celtics Heat won at this point. Again, as I mentioned before, Celtics could get the job done. He just might win in six. Not going to lie to you. I still think the Celtics... It should be. I just find it really impossible to see this Celtics team get swept. I really do. But at this point of the series, you know, you got to look at the writing on the wall. I don't think Boston has. Again, they have the you know mentality and the position to do it. They have the guys to do it. But the way that as Joe Mazzulla said, he's kind of lost the locker room. A lot of things, sentimentalities on him, especially defensively. But I'm thinking Heat in six, most likely. And for those script writers, and again, I don't think the NBA is rigged, but the NBA Twitter, they're talking about this script being leaked. Whoever wrote that script that was going on on Twitter of Adam Silver saying the Lakers and Celtics, that would have been a great cinema piece, but we're living in reality. We're living in reality where you have a two-time MVP and you have on the other side a team that is just on the brink of being a menace to society. 
there's no way you can stop those type of teams. So Denver, Miami, it was literally the NBA Finals. I'll be back with another podcast if that does happen. If not, even a podcast sooner than later. But either way, we'll be able to get it done with the next episode of Courtside. And again, I do appreciate you guys staying tuned with these episodes on me on the Courtside Podcast. Uh, feel free to follow us on Spotify, but I'll be right back after the Western Indies Conference Finals. And of course, if there's any developments, back on the podcast to talk a little bit more ball.